Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. In this concluding teaching of our apologetics conference, John Truitt of Kentucky gleans from Christ's example key ways that we can imitate him in our own evangelistic efforts today. He begins by looking at how Jesus was completely obedient to God and how he prepared himself, both in knowledge and experience. Next, Truitt urges us to get moving, expecting God to direct us as we are obedient. Lastly, he emphasizes the importance of radical love to our neighbors and the need for community. Here now is podcast 148, the conclusion of our apologetics conference, Evangelism, Jesus Way, with John Truitt. So we've been talking about apologetics, that's the topic of this conference, and the question is how how do we reach millennials with the gospel, how do we reach the next generation, your generation, with the gospel. We talked a little bit, I think it was Keegan that talked about uh, some Barna studies, and if you look at at the studies that Barna has done over the past 10, 15 years, whatever it is, and they've consistently shown that there's a large number of of young people leaving the the church. Uh, There's already in our society a large number who aren't raised in the church, but generally speaking, the studies are around 60-70% of young people leave the church. They actually found, interestingly, in a study they did, I believe in the late 2000s, where they, were, they weren't physically leaving the church until college, but mentally they were leaving it uh, at about their freshman, sophomore year in high school. And, and so there were a lot of different reasons for that, and, and they found there were two groups, one that, group that was leaving the church, and one group that was leaving the faith. We've talked a lot about both those situations. We've talked a lot about apologetics, reaching the, the people who've left the faith, or reaching the lost in general. The top two reasons that people left the church, not the faith, but the church, was hypocrisy and judgmentalism. There were other reasons included in that why they would leave the faith, and that had a lot to do with things that they were taught in school about evolution and, and that kind of stuff. And we're, we're, I'm not going to get into that today. We could spend a lot of time on that. We're seeing in our world today all these different worldviews. You know, we talked about it. Dale talked about the plurality of, of religions that are available, you know, today, that, that kind of thing, different views. And all those are basically worldviews. There always has to be some level of truth in those things. Right? There's got to be some element of truth. If there's not an element of truth, no one's going to believe it. And in some cases, there may be more truth in some worldviews and, and less in others, but they all have something that people can grasp onto and say, that's true. What makes Christianity different is, is a whole truth. It's all of the truth. And that's what we really need to, uh, to reach people with, is the fact that Christianity is not just it's not, this is the way Francis Schaeffer put it, it's not just the best explanation for reality. It's the only explanation for reality that answers all of the questions. And so we need to, we need to reach that. But, and here's my, my message, we don't need to reinvent anything. 
right? And, and I've read a lot of books, and there's a lot of great, you know, we talked about Greg Kokel yesterday, and his book Tactics is, is just absolutely spectacular. I love that book, and, it, and I have I've learned a lot from that book. But we don't really need to reinvent anything to do this. All we need to do is follow Jesus, right? He set the example. And so what I want to look at is several things along those lines. What, was it, what is it that Jesus has given us an example to do? What has he said? And what is it that we're supposed to follow so that we can be effective in that evangelism, so that we can be effective in reaching people with the gospel? Uh, turn to Ephesians, and I want you to get your Bibles out. We're gonna, you know, we, when you get into apologetics, a lot of times you spend a lot of time in philosophy and in worldview and not as much time in the Scriptures. This morning we're going to spend more time in the Scriptures. We're going to go to Ephesians chapter 5. I don't want to just read these things to you. I want us to read them together. And verse 1 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. And so this really kind of sums up the idea. And this, this is applying to a lot of different aspects of being a Christian, but I want to take it and apply it to this aspect of reaching people with the gospel, that we need to be imitators of Jesus, right? Imitate, we're going to imitate God by imitating Jesus, right? This is one of the things that sets biblical Unitarianism apart from a lot of Christianity is the fact that we view Jesus as a man who, specially created by God in Mary, lived a sinless life. And we can look at that, it, you know, it, being imitators of God, God is hard to imitate. It's hard to even imagine. But Jesus is just like us, except without sin. And we can see what he did, and we can follow that, right? And it says, as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us. And that gave himself, typically what we think about is the offering that he, he gave of himself on the cross, right? But he didn't just do that. The, Jesus gave of himself completely, right? It's not just his death on the cross, right? It was when he was sitting at dinner with the disciples, right? It was when he was sitting at the well talking to, to the woman, the Samaritan woman. You know, it was hugging the leper, right? Touching a leper because that person needed to experience that love, right? It was reaching out and walking through a crowd of people to find the one person that God was showing him to heal at the, at the pool of Siloam, right? That there's, there's this giving of himself all the time. It, you know, putting himself out there. I think about um, one of the times that he was, at, you know, at the temple in Jerusalem, and he cried out in the midst of all the people. Think about that. Can you imagine being in a church service and God has given you something to say, and you get up and you just say it, right, in the middle of the service? That's guts, right? Most people are going to look at you and, and think that you're nuts. But if we're actually doing what God wants us to do, then it takes courage. So we want to be imitators, right? So here's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at several things. And the first thing that I, I want to look at, and I'm just going to, to go to a, a couple of places regarding this, but that we need to do what Jesus tells us to do. Actually, let's start here. Go to Luke chapter 17. Jesus said that he only did what he saw the Father doing, right? 
that he was just following his father's orders. That's what he was doing. He wasn't coming up with anything on his own. He wasn't doing anything on his own. He's like, God, what do you want me to do? Okay, I'll go do that. What he was doing was he was being his father's slave, right? Now, in that culture, right, sons were slaves of their father because it doesn't have the same connotation that we have of that term. You could have this beloved relationship between a master and a slave. Now, you'd also have terrible relationships. But sons were essentially slaves of their father. They were to be obedient to their fathers. They didn't control their own property. The father controlled the the property until the father died. That's the way that the whole ancient world worked. So Jesus, when he says, I only do what I see the father doing, he's telling us, that he's being obedient to his father. He's following what his father's doing. And there's a whole bunch of messages about this throughout the parables about how we are supposed to be slaves of our father, right? And we see this here in, starting in verse 7. Which one of you, having a servant, tending sheep or plowing, will say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? Instead, will he not tell him, prepare something for me to eat, get ready, and serve me while I eat and drink? Later you can eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because he did what was commanded? In the same way, when you have done all that you were commanded, you should say, we are worthless servants, we've only done our duty. Now Jesus is constantly using hyperbole in in his messages, and this is a kind of hyperbole in the message. We know that we don't have the kind of relationship with God that is, you know, we're worthless servants. So what's Jesus doing, right? He's telling us how to have the right attitude, right? He's telling us, look, this. think about servants working for their master and they've been working in the field all day long. They come in, it's dinner time. The master doesn't say, hey guys, good job, come sit down, I'll, I'll give you some food. He says, go make me a sandwich. He says, Go in the kitchen, make some food, come and serve me. And, and they're like, yeah, that's how it works, right? And he's telling them, that's how you need to be. Right? That you need to be those kinds of servants. That you're not thinking, look at all the great stuff that I'm doing. You know, this is what I deserve, right? I am worthy. Instead, he's thinking, don't think that way. It's not that you're not worthy, but don't think that way. Think in terms of, what does he want me to do? That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be that kind of servant. I'm just going to do what he tells me to do. And then I'm going to do the next thing that he tells me to do. And then I'm going to do the next thing that he tells me to do. He's trying to get us to think that way. This is actually the point of the parable of the mustard seed. That the mustard seed, it's not, that it, it's not about it being small. It's about that fact that it does what God programmed it to do. It obeys God. That's the kind of faith that he's talking about. The kind of loyalty and allegiance and obedience. That's what he means by that kind of faith, right? You know, this passage here, you know, I read this a a while ago and it just really stuck in me that Jesus is trying to tell us, get out of yourself and just serve. Be that kind of servant, right? So we need to have this attitude, first of all, you know, being imitators of Jesus. The first and foremost thing is Jesus was a servant. He was a slave to God in the sense that he did exactly what God told him to do, always, and so we need, to, we need to have that same attitude. 
We need to be slaves of God. And we see Paul in some of his letters introduces himself that way, right? I think it's maybe Thessalonians. I think he introduces himself as a slave of Christ, right? We need to have that attitude. Second, Jesus prepared himself, right? And that's a big part of what we're doing this weekend. If you think about all the, the great men and women of God in the scriptures, frequently what you will see is it was a time where they prepared themselves, whether they knew that's what they were doing or not, for the great things that they did. So you think about David. I think David's a great example of this, where David, he was just this humble shepherd, you know, the, the youngest of his father, out in the field, and, and he's worshiping God out there. He's not doing what most people do, which, you know, is be self-focused. He's focused on God. He's writing songs to God. And he's fulfilling the duty that he's, his father has given him, which is an honor to God. So all of these things, and, and you see over and over again, so that when we see him go up against Goliath, it's not like he just showed up and somehow does a magic trick. He has spent years. He talks about how when these wild animals, these predators would come and attack the sheep, he would fight them off. And he'd fight them off knowing that God was with him. Because he had gone through this preparation, he knew God was with him. So we want to do as Jesus did. Uh, Look at uh, Luke chapter 2. We'll talk a little bit about how Jesus prepared himself. In Luke chapter 2, we have this interesting story, one of the few from Jesus' childhood, and it starts in verse 46. So they've come to Jerusalem to, to worship at a festival big crowd of them. There would have been a big caravan. If you, if you, you know, it may be hard to picture this in our society. You, you, know, you go on vacation, the nuclear family piles in the car and you know, drives a few hours. That's not how this worked. You know, they'd have a big clan of people all going down. Big group. This is why when it says in verse 43, after those days were over as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Now, some of you are parents in here. Could you ever possibly know that? You're, you've gone to another city and you're, and you're leaving the city and you don't realize that your child is with you, or is not with you, sorry. Assuming he was in the traveling party, they went a day's journey. Okay, now he's 12 years old. Think about this for a minute. A 12-year-old. You've got a 12-year-old. Some of you probably have 12-year-olds. Some of us may act like 12-year-olds. And you go an entire day before you figure out, hey, where's Jesus? Wait a minute. I haven't seen him all day, right? Uh, How does that happen? Well, it happens because this is a big party of people. And and just in that one thing, think about that one thing, right? How different when we read these scriptures, how different their lives were in terms of community. And we're going to talk about that at the end. That, you know, in our society, we have this terrible, terrible thing where we are ripped apart by our culture, and we do not have that kind of community connection. But he did. So then, verse 46, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding uh, and his answers. So there he is, 12 years old. You know, it's like he's sitting in the, the, the front row, right? He's paying attention. He's reading. He's understanding. He's trying to grasp 
everything. And he's, a, he's asking questions. He's giving very intelligent answers to their questions. We read him later. He's probably challenging any 12-year-old boy that is willing to just, you know, forget about his parents. I'm going to stay here in Jerusalem. I've had 12-year-olds. I've seen that kind of behavior before. So we see him preparing himself, that he's getting ready for the work that he has to do. There, you know, just a few other things that we can think about. Um, his 40 days in the wilderness where he's being tempted by the devil. That was preparation for the hard work that was about to come. He was getting himself ready. In, uh, we see a number of times where he would go off and he would go alone uh, onto a mountain and he would pray, right? And he would just spend time with God. And it's really easy for us to think about that in our culture where we value our alone time, you know, to pray and that kind of thing. That was unusual in their culture. That stands out. If you're a person reading this in that Eastern culture, you're thinking, wow, that's weird. Why would he do that? We don't think that, but they would think that because in Eastern cultures, they don't, aloneness is not a concept, right? They, they are always together. And so for him to do that is a, is a big deal. Well, what's he doing? Well, he's got to prepare himself for the next stage, right? He's got to go off. He's got to get that revelation from God. And he has so many demands on him from all the crowds, from the people, from the disciples. You know, he's pouring himself out. He's got to go back to God, and he's got to go be alone to be with God to get filled. Again, preparing himself. And then finally, I, you know, I like this record. Uh, we won't go there, but when he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, before he knows he's going to be taken, right? He knows what's going to happen. He's read the Psalms. He knows what's going to happen to him. He has seen people crucified. He knows he's going to get crucified, and he's seen it happen because the Romans did it all the time. He knows what that's like. He knows what, that he's going to be beaten, and he knows what that looks like. You know, we, we don't typically see that in our society. And they used to do this thing where they were going to do a public ex- execution. Everybody in the town would come out and they would watch it. And the purpose of that was to, you know, as a warning, you know, don't do what this guy did. The Romans, they did that all the time. All, you know, their, uh, their executions, all that kind of stuff were very public. And that was the purpose. So he knew what was going to happen to him. So he goes into the garden and he goes off and he prays hard multiple times, right? Think about that for a minute. Paul at one time says that he prayed three times for the thorn of the flesh flesh to be taken away. And, you know, these are guys who know God, they have God's ear. Jesus knows God is listening to him. And he knows he's hearing him the first time. He already knows that. But he prays again and again. He's preparing himself. Jesus knows what's going to happen, and he's getting himself ready for that. He is genuinely asking for another way, but at the same time, he's gearing up. He's making sure he's pouring out his heart in that last moment before all this comes to pass to God. Again, a kind of preparation. If you're about to go through something tough, praying your heart to God out about that situation that's preparing for that situation. So we see this in different ways, Jesus preparing himself. So we need to prepare ourselves, right? Again, we're imitating Jesus. We need to prepare ourselves in all these different ways. We saw Jesus asking questions and learning and studying. 
We saw Jesus you know, going through processes, experiential processes, like when he goes out to the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted of the devil, and he's, he's experiencing a process there. Right? And we see him pouring himself out in prayer, right? really getting with God and preparing and listening. All right, what are we going to do? Do we have to do it that way? Maybe we can do it different. Okay, we'll do it that way. Really, really listening to God. I think of this, this is the analogy I want to give to you about preparing yourself, about a knife. And think of that you're the knife and God is the chef, right? But here's the deal. In this case, the knife sharpens itself. Now, if you don't sharpen yourself, right, if the knife is not sharp and the chef goes to use the knife, it's a dull knife, and the, the chef wants to pair with it, well, it can be a little challenging, the chef wants to slice with it, that's real challenging. Chef wants to chop with it, that's real challenging, right? If the knife is not sharp, it's difficult for the chef to use the knife. Doesn't mean the chef can't use the knife, it's just that the knife is less, much less effective. But if you prepare the knife and you make it very sharp, then it's very easy for the chef to do what the chef wants to do with that knife. That's us preparing ourselves. When we study and learn, when we spend time on the big words, right? You know, when we learn how to interact, you know, when we experience that and we, we, we learn things like the techniques uh, that we've talked about, about asking questions and those kinds of things and learning how to, to, to interact in those situations, learning how to pray to God for guidance in those situations, you know, and, and preparing in that way. You know, you're going to go to work, presumably tomorrow, pray for God to prepare you for interactions at your work and where you go. You know, so by doing all those things, you sharpen the knife. Now, when you're, and we're going to get into this next session about walking with God, when you're walking with God, in those situations, you're a sharp knife. You're much more effective for him. If you don't have knowledge, right? if you don't know how to answer, then it's going to be difficult for God to use you in a situation where somebody has a question that you can't actually answer. But if you've prepared yourself and you know the answers, you may not even remember at that point, but you've prepared yourself, and God can bring that up in an instant. And suddenly they ask a the question, and you're like, oh, yeah, I know the answer to that. Or you've, ex- you've been preparing experientially, and you know this situation where there's, they're reacting very negatively, and so I- I'm not going to just argue with them. I'm, I'm going to genuinely get to know them. I'm going to ask them questions about themselves. And all I'm going to try and do at this point is build a relationship because I know by experience that in this particular case, this is how this is going to work. And God is feeding me at the same time. Let me sidetrack for just a moment. There's a great story in the book, God's Smuggler, where um, it's about a, a man who would take, a Dutch man who would take Bibles behind the Iron Curtain uh, during the, you know, the Cold War era. And he would, he would smuggle in. And then this, he's got this one story where he was working at this factory and there was a woman there um, who was not a Christian, very belligerent, just not a nice person. 
And one day she asks him for a ride home. Talk about cultural context. It was on bicycle because that's what you rode around. And so she's asking for a ride on his bicycle, right? I, I guarantee you when everybody in this room would be thinking, oh, in the car. You know, so he's thinking to himself, oh, this is my opportunity. I'm going to talk to her about God and, and how she, she needs to believe God and she needs to, to turn her life over to Christ and all this kind of stuff because you know, that's what he's seen. That's what he, you know, that'll change her life. And that's what he's thinking. And then the Lord speaks to him and says, don't you dare say a word to her about me. Just talk about whatever, the weather. And so they, he takes her on this bike ride and, they, and he's just talking about the fields and you know, because I think it was spring and the flowers and stuff like that, and he doesn't say a thing about God. Now, she knows because he's a Christian missionary and a minister that that's what he's all about, right? So they get to their destination, and she begins to cry. And the reason was she had geared herself up for the onslaught, right? She was ready for the fight. And instead, he just loved her, and it broke, it broke whatever wall, whatever barrier was there, and she opened up, and he was able to minister to her, right? Now, that's the kind of thing that comes by experience, right, of walking with God. That's the prayer thing. That's, we have to have all these things, but at the point where she opened up, he actually had to have answers. You can't just walk in the power of God, and you'll be able to, no, you have to do the preparation of the knowledge part as well. God wants all men to be saved and to... Exactly, right? God is looking for both of those things, right? Okay, so we want to prepare ourselves in all of these different ways so that we can be effective in the Master's hands. The next thing I want to, I want to say about in terms of imitating Jesus is that we need to walk with God, and specifically what I mean by that is in the power of God. Jesus walked in the power of God. He listened to God, and then he manifested power into those situations. I think I I, I said something about this the other day, that in terms of evangelism and converting people, you you can be really, really good at apologetics, and that's great. You can have all the answers, and you can know how to argue and all that kind of stuff. And you'll be effective in some cases. that, That will work, and it's important to know all that stuff. But... If you raise somebody from the dead, people are going to listen to every word you say. Right? At least most people are. The power of God is a witness to the truth of what you're saying. That God is witnessing to that. And in fact, the power of God, you know, we, we get the Holy Spirit when we get born again. And we receive power from on high. But the primary intention of that is for us to love the world, right? It's, it's not really given to us necessarily for us. It's so that we can love others with God's power, and primarily in the sense of reaching out to people who are hurting and are lost, right? So if you want to see great power, start doing that. Start evangelizing, and you'll see a lot of power, Right? Because that's its purpose, is God is witnessing to people about the kingdom. I like to say that, that the power of God is like Chick-fil-A in the mall. Okay, ever seen a Chick-fil-A in the mall? Where somebody stands, one of the, the workers will stand outside 
the store with a platter of little nuggets, right? And, and they're, they're trying to get you to eat one of the little nuggets. And why are they doing that? Are they just trying to give away free chicken? They want you to come in the store, right? So this is a little piece of what you're going to experience in the store, right? That's the idea. That's why they're out there with the little pieces. The spirit that we have now is the little piece. The store is the kingdom. That's the purpose. We're, we're out there with the platter, and we're trying to get people come into the kingdom. So, but this is what Jesus did. He walked in this power. He was demonstrating what the kingdom life was going to be like. When he healed somebody, he was demonstrating that the kingdom was about healing. It was about perfect health. So when he delivered people of demons, he was showing them what the kingdom was going to be like. You're not going to have to deal with these guys anymore. They're going to be gone. No more oppression in the spiritual realm. So uh, let's look at John chapter 10. Verse 38 Jesus says, if I am not doing my Father's works, oh, that's verse 37, Uh, if I'm not doing my Father's works, don't believe me, verse 38, but if I am doing them and you don't believe me, believe the works. This way you will know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. So those works, healing the paralyzed and the blind and raising the dead and delivering people from demons and all that kind of stuff. Those things that he was doing, the, the loaves and the fishes and you know, walking on the water and all this kind of stuff that people were seeing were these powerful works that were witnesses to that God was in him. Because who can walk on water? Nobody. So that's a miracle when he changes the water into wine. Who can do that? Nobody. But God can. So it's demonstrating that God is with him. Look at uh, John chapter 5. And he, he essentially says the same thing in verse 36. He says, But I have a greater testimony than John's because of the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. These very works I am doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. Now, what did we say at the beginning? We don't want to reinvent things. We want to just do what Jesus did. Right? We want to follow his example. We want to follow him. Right? And what he did was... He walked with his father, listening to God and doing the things that God was doing. And those works that he did in power testified that God God was actually with him. So we want to do that. Look at verse, I think it's 19. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son likewise does these things. This is our example. This is our example, right? We just read that he was doing the works that testified, and he's not doing anything on his own. He's just doing what the Father is showing him to do, right? We saw the the parable where he says to be like the slave that comes in and just does whatever his master tells him to. He's not expecting that he's going to get special treatment for all that hard work he's been doing all day long. He's not thinking that way. He's thinking, he's got the mindset of, you know, what does my master want me to do now? That's the mindset that Jesus had. What does my father want me to do now? And we need to imitate that. What does the Lord want me to do now? And you have to walk with him to be able to do that. You have to listen to him. I love this story. 
Go to Acts chapter 16. And we'll start in verse 6. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. They had been, this is Paul's second missionary journey. He's come back into what is today central Turkey. He's visited the churches that he and Barnabas had founded uh, on their first missionary journey. They had their split. He's come up here with Silas and and they've picked up Timothy and they're going to go, they're going to go to some new places now, right? They're going to go new missionary ground. So they head out and, and this is an interesting thing. Hear this. They don't know where they're supposed to go. They have a mission, right? Which is to go bring the gospel to new people but they don't know where to go yet. Now, in central Turkey at this time, the nearest very large city was Ephesus. And you know, it wasn't that far away, relatively speaking. They could have been there pretty quickly. And it was a gigantic city, one of the largest cities in the, in the Roman world. Right? So think about this. You're a missionary. You're in a place where not too far away from you is one of the largest population centers in the region. Where does it make the most sense? You have a mission, right? Which is go take the gospel to the lost. What are you naturally going to do? Yeah. Doesn't that make sense? Go, you, this is the way I put it. You go to Ephesus. That's what you do. So you'll hear me say this sometimes where I'll say, are we going to Ephesus? Right? Which is, means to do things out of our own mind. So that's where Paul wants to go. But look at what happens. They had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now, Ephesus is in Asia, so they're not going to go there. When they came to Mysia, which is kind of north and west a little bit, they tried to go into Bithynia. Now, Bithynia was a cool place. I imagine this, would, this was like a resort area along the, uh, the uh, southern part of the Black Sea. And big population center again, and nice place, right? I imagine it still is a nice place. But the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So again, remember, they don't know where they're going. Here's the second piece. But they are actually going. They're not just sitting waiting for revelation. They're on the move. And they're expecting that as they're on the move, they're going to get revelation. That's a, there's a little key in here, Right? We don't just wait. We don't sit and wait. If we've given a mission, we know what that is, we, we, we start to move. But we're looking for the direction as we move. So then they go on. Uh, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. Now, Troas is on the northwestern coast of what is, again, today Turkey. And it's a, it's a pretty good distance from where they were in Galatia. So think about this. They still don't know where they're supposed to go. They're just going, but they don't know where they're supposed to go to preach the gospel. They thought they'd go here. Nope. Lord saying, nope, I don't want you to go over there. Okay, well, let's go up here. And they're still moving. Nope. So they're still moving. All right, well, we're not supposed to go there. Let's go this way. He hadn't told us yet not to go that way. So let's go that way. So they go that way. They end up in Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision in which a Macedonian man was standing and pleading with him, cross over to Macedonia, cross over the sea, to Macedonia, and help us. After he had seen the vision, we immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And in fact, what's really interesting, they, they actually pass one city in Macedonia, end up in Philippi, and that's where they begin to preach the gospel. 
So they, even, they don't even just go to Macedonia in general. They end up in a very specific place. You look at this record, and what you see is they're on the move, but they're listening, and they're doing what God is telling them to do. They're doing what the Lord is telling them what to do. And so this is the thing, is that we want to walk in that power, but the only way for us to do it, and we need to walk in the power, so we have to walk, but we have to listen. We have to be doing and then listening and doing what he's showing us to do. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John heal a lame man. And as a result, thousands of people are saved right? because of this one healing. Think about the leverage that the walking in the power of God has. Right? They might have gone to Ephesus and have some effect, but that's not where God wanted them. He had a different plan, and he knew Philippi is where they needed to go. Now, if, you're, if you study the whole of the New Testament, this is interesting, right? Can, can anybody tell me what was unique about the people in Philippi compared to the other churches funded? The, Philipp, the Philippian church consistently funded Paul's missions, right? And I believe that's why the Lord was sending them to Philippi. Because, yeah, there could have been... But the Lord had a plan. And, and so in order to accomplish that, he needed to bring that about by he knew these people. He knew Lydia was going to be the person to begin funding this thing, to go all over the Mediterranean, the northern Mediterranean. So, so we want to walk in that power because we don't know what to do. Jesus didn't know what to do. God is the one who knows what to do. So now God has put Jesus in charge of the church and us, And he tells Jesus, okay, here's the plan. And Jesus carries that out through us now. But in order to do this, in order to be effective, really effective, we have to walk with him. We have to listen. We have to walk in that power. And you think about this guy who gets healed and more than five, it says 5,000 men. So thousands of people are converted from that one event, right? That's leverage. They went to Philippi and they got all the funding that they needed from there to travel all around that part of the Mediterranean to do lots of missionary work, that's leverage. But look at Acts chapter 4, because, uh, and we'll wrap up this section with this. Uh, in Acts chapter 4, they've been arrested. They, the Jewish leadership don't like what they're doing. Go down to verse 23. They, um, they've been released. It says in verse 23, after they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, so they're going to pray together. Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why do the Gentiles rage and the people plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against the Messiah. They, they, they just experience this, right? Verse 27, for in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. I always think it's funny how when you read in the scriptures that the, the Jews, when they're praying, they like to remind God of things. Now, I'm pretty sure that God remembers this already. <laughs> so, but 
You know, there's a lesson in that. Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders. Give us boldness to speak while you manifest your power as a witness. Are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. God even gave them evidence in that situation. He's answering their prayer. Yep, we're going to do this. We saw in imitating Jesus, we need to prepare ourselves, which includes both knowledge and experience, right? We need to walk with God in obedience, following Jesus, and walking in that power. We need to pray for that stuff. That, all of that needs to be done with the motivation of radical love, right? Because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, and we'll look a little bit at this, you know, you can have all knowledge and you can have all that power, but if you're not motivated by love, it doesn't mean anything. Look at John 13 first. We'll go here real quick and then we'll go over to 1 Corinthians 13. We'll briefly talk about that and then we'll wrap up with what do we need to do then? John chapter 13, verse 34. We talked a little bit about this last night. I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is a, this is a way of evangelizing, right? It, you know, there's nothing more attractive than love. I'm going to say that again because that's, I, I, I hear that. There is nothing more attractive than love, right? When people are loved, they naturally are drawn, right? And you all know this. We all know this, right? Somebody who genuinely loves you, you know, you, you want to be with that person, right? So, so here we have this command from Jesus, love one another as I have loved you. We talked about last night about how he's saying he's about to leave, right? He's going to leave them. And he says he's not going to leave them alone. He's going to give them the comforter, right, the, the spirit, and that's the witness. But he isn't actually physically here. We, I, I can't go over and do, like in John's gospel, talking about the disciple that Jesus loved and lay my head on his chest. Anybody here would like to do that? I'd really like to do that. That would be really nice. But we can't do that, right? But we can with each other. We can be Jesus for each other. We can love each other just as he loved. Turn to 1 Corinthians 13. I'm going to give you a, a very brief lesson about this chapter and about love you may or may not have heard before. Down in verse 8, depending on what translation you have, it's going to say you know, something like love never fails, love never ends. It's a little tricky in the Greek. But the idea is it's, it's not going to stop. The idea that, that the love will continue. I'd often thought about this, this verse, love never fails. That really wasn't my experience. That if I'm trying to love my wife in a difficult situation, but at some point, I'm getting frustrated and mad 
and irritated and all that kind of stuff. We've all experienced that, right? So the love ended, right? It, you know, and I, maybe I, I yelled or I stomped off or whatever. We've all experienced that kind of thing, right? Where you're, you're, you're trying to do the right thing. You're trying to love, you know, because that's what we're commanded to do. And you're trying to do it. And then it, it, they're just not cooperating. And eventually you get to the point where the level of frustration boils over and the love ends, right? Now, the reason that I was doing that is because I misunderstood what this chapter was actually all about. It's not about telling you how to behave in a loving manner, which I I certainly took it that way. I think most people take it that way. Let's read it. If I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions and if I give over my body in order to boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Right? Now, it sounds, on the surface, like this is a list, a checklist of how to love. Right? Ah, love is patient, so I need to be patient. Right? Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It's not self-seeking. It's not, it's not irritable. Oh, that's a tough one. Okay, I'm going to work on not being irritable. That's what I'm going to do. That's how I'm going to love. I'm not going to get irritable. But that, is, that doesn't work. That's how love ends, right? Because the reality is your motivation is not correct. That's why it ends. Look at, look at what it says, because this is not about how to. This is about what your motivation is. It says, if I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It's not talking about, it doesn't say, if I don't love. It says, if I do not have love. It's talking about the motivation, right? And think about this for a minute. If you are motivated by love, right, and, and the kind of love that we're talking about is the kind of love where it's about the other person, not about me. It's about their welfare and benefit, not about what I'm going to get out of the situation. So going back to the situation with my wife, if I, you know, I'm a little frustrated because I, I want her to do something or not do something, probably not do something like, you know, Leave me alone about cleaning that mess up. So I don't want her to do something. And so, but I know I need to be patient. I know I need to not be irritable. So maybe I, 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 I'm talking nicely, right? That kind of thing. Whatever, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. The example that I, I like to use is when we, you know, when we think about love, uh, one of the best pictures is a young newlywed couple. And we look at them and, they're, and we say, they're so in love. Look at how much they love each other, right? But if you've been married for any length of time, you know that's bogus. <laughs> that is not what is happening. They are two people who are very happy 
at how the other person makes them feel. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's selfishness. That's not love. It looks good. It feels good. It is not love. It's not the kind of love God's talking about. It's not the kind of love that looks like this. This is God's kind of love. This is what his kind of love, Jesus' kind of love looks like. It looks like this. A man who's given up everything, been beaten to an absolute pulp, dragged across the city, nailed to a cross, and killed because he loves his friends. That's love. So, So in that situation... If I'm dealing with someone who, it's a frustrating situation, right? If it's about what I want, I want them to stop behaving that way. You know, frequently with my children, this is how I have had to re-engineer my thinking. They're behaving in a way I don't want them to behave. And so I'm trying to get them to stop that behavior. If my motivation is I want them to stop the behavior because I find it frustrating or irritating or whatever, it's bothering me. I don't like it, my love will end, right? If they, if they don't change, and maybe how I, you know, I'm going to manipulate them, right? First, I might give them a treat to try and, you know, it's like a dog trick, right? You, you know, you get your, that works for a while, and then it gets too expensive. You know, you give them the treat, and maybe they change their behavior, you're manipulating them. And then, later, and, and then maybe you get really frustrated, and you lash out in anger. Maybe you yell at them, and... So one hour, what are you doing? You're still manipulating them. You've just changed tactics, right? It's still about you. But if I have motivation for love, if what I am thinking is not, what am I going to get out of this? It's what can I do for them? What do they need? The whole thing changes. Because suddenly now, if they're not cooperating... Why would I get frustrated? It's not about me in the first place, right? It's about them. This is the the way I read this now is these things, love is patient, love is kind. I think of them as red flags. That if I'm getting irritable, oh, wait, what's my motivation? What am I trying to get out of this situation? So that's the way that I I think about this. So so this is a little tool that I, I wanted to give you about how to have radical love is to be motivated by the kind of love that Jesus loved with, right? By getting out of our own selves and our own thinking and our our own motivations and trying to see what am I going to get out of this to dump it all together. You want to have a great marriage? Always think in this way with your spouse, that it's always about what do they need and how can I be motivated by that love for their benefit, right? Because your patience will never end. Your kindness will never end. You will never be irritable. This is how we do this with each other, right? This is how we get the kind of love for each other. So the last thing I want to say is that in, in doing this, this thing where we're going to walk like Jesus, where we're going, to, we're going to bring the gospel to the world by being like Jesus, by imitating him in these ways, by preparing ourselves, by walking in power, by having this radical kind of love, is that it must be done in community. You can't do this alone. A big part of that is just because if you are alone, it's going to wear you down. 
it's, you know, it's that iron sharpening iron. I like the analogy of the, the hot coals. And, you know, it's kind of cliche, but it, it works so well. You got these really hot red coals and you take a coal and you put it off by itself. And a little while later you come back and all these coals are still red hot. And that one's completely cold. And it, the analogy works because that's what happens to us. When we're alone, it wears on us. We're not designed. God said the very first thing in creation that was bad was man being alone. God created this whole thing and he said, oh, this is good, this is good, this is really good, this is good. But it wasn't very good yet. It was all really, really good, except there was a problem. Man was alone. We are not supposed to be alone. And this is the, going back to that cultural thing. We have a terrible, terrible problem in our culture that a lot of other cultures don't actually have. And that's aloneness. We have to strive to overcome this problem. We have to really work at not being alone and overcoming it. We have to overcome our, our cultural desires for being alone. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where you, you, know, you prize that alone time and all that kind of stuff. Me time. What do you think the motivation is of me time? Me, right? It's me time, right? Now, I'm not talking about time that you need to go off and you need to spend with God and, and pray and you know, you know, spend time with the Lord. And all that. I'm not talking about that. We all need that, right? But I'm talking about how we really need to work hard at community, at being together, at, at living our lives together in Christ. We are one. We looked at John 13. We won't go there. But let's go to 1 Corinthians 12. So we saw Jesus in, in John 13. He was saying that, you know, I'm going to leave you. But here's what you need to do. You need to love one another. That is how we get through this. There's a time coming that will make this life look just like, just dung. It, we'll look back and we'll go, my God. God, that was terrible. Right? We think it's bad now. By comparison, well, wow, it was really, really bad. And when you go through tough times, you know this, right? You know, you know uh, Vina was talking about what she's been going through, you know, last night, uh, the last few months. You know, it's terrible, right? This is hard. To get there intact, we need each other. And there's a lot of lost people that need to be with us. And when we're together and we're doing these things, we can bring them into that, and that's great. But first and foremost, this is, the commandment is love one another. It doesn't mean we don't love other people outside of it. We do want to do that. We, we, but our first commandment as Christians is to love one another, to be a family. In uh, 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 12, it says, For just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many, are one body, so also is Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. Indeed, the body is not one part, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it is not for that reason any less a part of the body. 
And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it is not for that reason any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God has arranged each one of the parts in the body just as he wanted. And if they were all the same part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, or again, the head. You know, this, this is a little weird. This is stupidly obvious, and yet he's going to repeat himself as if we needed to know this. Think about that for a minute. He's having to repeat himself because we don't get this. Verse, what is it? I can't read that. The, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Or again, the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that are weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we consider less honorable, we clothe these with greater honor. And our unrespectable parts are treated with greater respect, which our respectable parts do not need. Instead, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the less honorable, so that there would be no division in the body, but the members would have the same concern for each other. Now, obviously, Paul, in the context here, is dealing with a lot of division. The whole book of 1 Corinthians, practically, is about the division going on in their church. And they had a different kind of division than we're talking about, but we still have division. Verse 26, so if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, and all the members rejoice with it. Now, you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. And God has appointed these in the church. And he goes on to talk about different functions, like an eye and an ear. But the point is, We are all one. We are one body. We are not supposed to be divided. We are supposed to be integrated completely. There's lots of analogies. This is one analogy. We've got a family. That's another analogy. The idea is no division, complete unity, complete togetherness, complete community. Like it says at the early in Acts where, I think it's two, the end of two, where they had all things in common. That's how close of a family they were to begin with, that we were to begin with. That there was no question if a member of my family needed something, absolutely, if I had the power to give it, no no question about it. Your hand does not look at the cut on your toe and think, I'm the hand, I don't care about the toe. It puts a Band-Aid on the toe. Because it can, the toe can't put the Band-Aid on itself. You know, guys, this is the thing, is that, you know, we, as biblical Unitarians, we are a very small part of Christianity, right? And we all have experienced and know the difficulty in being a part of a a Trinitarian community, right? And we don't want it to be that way, but what are we going to do? As Paul says in Romans 12, he says, be at peace with all men, or be at peace as far as you are able to, Right? with others. And so, you know, we we do that. But you know what? We can be at peace with each other. We can be in community with each other. So one of the things that I've thought about about this weekend, we have several different organizations represented here, biblical Unitarian organizations, but we are one body. We are one in Christ. We are one family. And we need each other, and we need to take care of each other. And we need to be together, right? Now, obviously, again, Our particular culture makes this very, very difficult. So we have to work hard to overcome that. 
let me say these, these three things in terms of encouraging each other to walk in knowledge and power and in love, to imitate Christ as a witness, as a, as a way of evangelizing, that that's what Jesus did, that's what we need to do, is, first of all, to let this conference help to build a community, right? I know a, a lot of you guys, each of us in the room have some people that we've known. I've known Janet for a very long time now. I've known the Willenbergs for quite a while. But there's a lot of you I don't know, right? I've just met you this weekend. And that's, a, that's true for every one of you here. There's people here that this is the first time you've met them, right? But I think as this conference has demonstrated in the way that we've done it, how we are a family and we need to love each other and how great it is to be together and to love each other. So let the conference help to, to begin that process for you with the other people here. Second, Assuming that you have a local community, build that community in the way that Jesus builds. Imitate Jesus in your local fellowship, in your local church. Do what we've talked about this morning in your local church. Love with that radical kind of of love, right? Walk in that power. Gain knowledge. Encourage in your local community that kind of community, that love that begins to spill over to the lost, where they're looking at it and going, I want that. You know, you can argue with someone until they're blue in their fa- until you're blue in your face, right? And and in some cases, they're just never going to listen to you. But there's a lot of times where you demonstrate love to people, and then they'll listen. Third, if you don't have a local community, we have one online, and we've been working to build that for some time. And, you know, that's part of the reason why we do the virtual fellowship, and we haven't really talked about that much, but the reason we do the, the virtual fellowship is because there's so many biblical Unitarians that are isolated, and they've got no local fellowship. Their choices are nothing or going to a mainstream Trinitarian church and either getting kicked out eventually or hiding what they believe, which means they can't really ever have real relationships because they can't ever go deep with anybody. They can't reveal that stuff, or they probably get kicked out. So, you know, it's a rare bird of a church that won't, you know, kick a biblical Unitarian out eventually. If you don't have a local community, don't be the coal out on the side, because, you know, there is an online community of, of believers that will, will be there for you. And, and it's, very different than what I had expected, but, but it's awesome. It's really, really awesome. We help each other and we love each other. So if you don't have that, um, and if you have that, that's awesome. That's great. If you have a local community of believers, that is really, really awesome. And, and dive deep into that and make that a place of tremendous, tremendous love. But if you don't have that, come join us. We'd love to have you online. That's it for this episode today. If you want to find out more about John Truitt and join him on his virtual church online, I've got a link to a video that explains how to do that on YouTube, or you can contact him directly by email at jtruitt, T-R-U-I-T-T, at kaleo.net. K-A-L-L-E-O dot net. That's jtruitt at kaleo.net. And get in touch with him if you like. 
Also, I did another podcast episode with Truett called Virtual Fellowship for Isolated Believers, and that was interview number 32. So you can look that up either in your device or online at restitudio.org. Also, if you would like to leave any comments or feedback, please log on to restitudio.org and look for episode 148, Apologetics Conference 6, and you'll be able to add your voice to the mix. Thanks, for everyone, for tuning in. We'll catch you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.